I'm going to go ahead and now read the chapter. It's only 17 verses, and then I'll go through verse by verse. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad, but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those for whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be, should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him lest perhaps such an one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I did not find Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, as are so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Okay, so this chapter can be broken down into three parts. And uh, this, I think, well, most, many sources broke it down roughly into three parts, and there were little differences of which verse well, with which. But anyway, so part one, why Paul did not come to Corinth, verses 1 to 4. Restoration of a repentant sinner, verses 5 to 11. And Paul's labors and their fruits, verses 12 through 17. Okay. First of all, why Paul did not come to Corinth. First one, I, but I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. Paul knew. Just a minute, let me make it text a little better. Paul knew that if he came to them before they had corrected the problems mentioned in 1 Corinthians, he would have had to rebuke them sharply, and that would have been unhappy for him and for them. So instead, he decided to wait a little longer and give his message time to work. And I think there's a lesson to be learned there just in passing. People may come around in response to truth that they hear, but it may not be right away. We may have to wait a while. Uh, I think that the other son, you know, or the, our Lord told the story of the two sons, and the one said, I go, and went not. The other one said, I go not, and he went. And I think the second son is maybe more common uh, of many of us, that um, we hear something and, and we are prone to reject it. But given time, we may come around, and people often do. So the lesson to us is to be wise, as the Holy Spirit led the Apostle Paul to be, and sometimes when the Holy Spirit leads, to give people time to think and to give the Holy Spirit time to work on people that they might come around and that we might not you know, have to go and and say harsh and unkind things. Or they, and, you know, if Paul had said it, I suppose they would have been unkind things, per se. They just would have been hard things. And uh, sometimes there's better ways. So verse 2, For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad, but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, that when I came, I should not have, I should, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. And, and this 
the only point that I drew from this as I put up there is that uh, Christians ought to have joy and encouragement in one another. That Paul, this is Paul's goal in writing these things. You know, we ought to exhort one another. We ought to be an encouragement one another. We ought to consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, as, as Hebrews tells us. And, um, you know, I'm afraid often we provoke one another, <laughs> but it's not to love and to good works. And uh, we need to provoke one another to love and to good works and be an encouragement to one another. And over the years, it has been a blessing in, in various situations. Look at the various situations that I've been in over the years and crazy things. And yet, situations where I had good, you know, good Christian friends and, and other Christian brothers and sisters in Christ who were an encouragement when we came together. And you just you, you felt more motivated to serve the Lord uh, for having been around them. Okay, verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly, or more abundantly, the old King James says, for you. So Paul had written his previous letter to them in great sadness and pain because he loved them. And sometimes we have to say hard things because we love people. And um, most of the time, if, if you're like me, I, I don't like to say hard things to people. And, and uh, I think sometimes there can be a tendency when Things need to be said that are difficult. You shy away from saying them until then you get provoked, and then it's not good, and then you're working out the righteousness of God. But sometimes we have to say things that, that are hard and because we love people. But uh, So Paul has explained to her in the first four verses why he hadn't come straight on to Corinth. You know, Paul, you were there in Ephesus, or, yeah, probably in Ephesus, and uh, you sent this, why send a letter by the hand of Titus why not just come on over to Corinth yourself and set things to rights? Well, here he told them. Okay, so verse 5. Now we're going to talk about that fellow who was mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, who, uh, you know, he said, there's fornication among you, and such fornication is not so much as named among the Gentiles that a man should have his father's wife. And you ought to have grieved, and, but you were puffed up. And he says to the church at Corinth. So they, had, they were harboring, not just tolerating, but they were congratulating themselves on their tolerance. Look at us, aren't we so tolerant? Uh, they were very um, puffed up about that, and they shouldn't have been because they had that serious sin there. Now he's going to address that. So now he's heard, by the time he writes this, he's heard that they have responded well, that... Uh, and that they have followed his instructions to put this wicked, high-handed, flagrant sinner out of fellowship. And they did. So now he has some further instruction for them. So he says, but if anyone has caused grief, he's not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. So I have two points here. Uh, Paul seems to be saying that the flagrant sinner mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5 had not so much caused grief to him, but rather to the whole assembly or caused grief, or caused pain, or caused injury. So he's saying, I'm not the injured party, primarily. It's really all of you. He emphasizes the problem is not with his own feelings. Maybe some of you have, um, I imagine it's sometime you've heard, what uh, usually it's humorous, it's a comedic monologue, uh, where you hear one side of the conversation, and then you can tell what the other side is saying, kind of like a phone conversation where you hear one person and you know that the other person has said something very funny. Because, and a lot of times it's more funny because rather than telling you the dumb thing the person on the phone said, the other person that you can't hear, you, you pick it up from the person that you, you, know, you can hear. Now, now, this isn't funny right here. But this has some elements of a monologue where you pick up what the other guy has said by what the one person is, is saying. Uh, and... So here, from the way Paul is responding, he's saying, look, this, this isn't about my feelings. This isn't about, it's not that I felt hurt. It's not that I felt angry. It's not that I felt grieved or not that I felt sad. The problem is what this fellow did has hurt you all. That situation was hurting all of you. Um, and I, I draw from this that the message that the Corinthians, the church at Corinth, sent back with Titus uh, in response to the letter was, oh, oh, you know, Paul, we're so sorry 
that we hurt your feelings by doing this thing and having this fellow in the church who was an outbroken sinner. And we're so sorry that, that we made you angry and, and we bothered you and you hurt your feelings and, and all that. And Paul said, it's not about my feelings. It's not about what I think. And it's not about me at all. It's about the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's not that, oh, Paul's got a problem with people that are shacked up with their stepmother. Yeah, well, Paul, yeah, maybe Paul does have a problem with that. But the issue here is that God has an issue with that, that, that God disapproves of what was going on there. And, it was, and the whole church was hurt by it. All of their testimonies were hurt by it because the word was out on the street in Corinth that there was stuff going on among those Christians there at Corinth that the unbelievers don't even do. I heard a story like that uh, in recent times of a, a well-known, uh, said-to-be leader in the evangelical community, some of us that were a little closer to him, not pers- I didn't know him personally, but knew about his doings more personally, uh, didn't think so, but... Uh, and. I, remember, I heard of an unbeliever saying regarding that person that he was doing, that things were going on that um, the unbelievers didn't even do. I don't know if that's totally true, but anyway, uh, that's what was going on at Corinth, wasn't it? Paul, Paul said that that was true under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There's fornication among you and fornication that is not so much as named among the Gentiles. And apparently the word of this was out on the street, and that was a problem. Because the whole testimony of the church at Corinth was being hurt by that, by that acceptance of sin. Why they're totally okay with sin, we thought they, we thought they really believed that stuff about God. I guess not. Well, so it, it, it's not me, but it's all of you to some extent, he says. So verses 6 and 7. The punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary you ought rather to forgive and comfort him lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Okay, now the purpose of the punishment, and in 1 Corinthians 5 it says this too, you know, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. The idea is that he be restored to right relationship with God and the church and uh, that he be brought to an awareness and to a consciousness of his sin. As long as the Christians around him say, oh, you're fine, you're totally, oh, yeah, it's great. He's going to think he's fine, too. And that's probably going to drown out the the still small voice of the Holy Spirit telling him, you need to repent of this. This is wicked. But all the Christians around him are telling him, you're totally fine. How is he going to get right with God at that rate? Well, Paul put a stop to that in the first letter to the Corinthians. You need to put this man out of fellowship. And they did. And apparently then he had repented, and he had forsaken his sin. He got right. And so Paul says, you need, to, you need to receive him now. This is sufficient. Why is it sufficient? Because the purpose of the punishment, or the discipline, was to restore the sinner. And so the punishment should end when the sinner renounces his sin and, and confesses and repents and forsakes his sin. Then the punishment should end. Uh, in the denomination my wife grew up in, uh, they had a thing of putting people sort of out of fellowship. They, uh, they did the Lord's Supper every week, and they sat in a circle to pass the elements of, of communion around among them. And uh, people who were not in full fellowship had to sit back. That was a term. They were like, oh, so-and-so had to sit back. And uh, uh, there was um, a couple who um, actually got right. And the only way the elders of the church found out that there had been sin was that the couple confessed that they had committed sin and that they had, uh, and they had stopped it. Basically, they stopped it before the, the, the elders of the church knew it. So the elders of the church decided that they'd have to sit back for what was a year or two or something like that. So they had to sit back for a year or two after they had confessed and forsaken their sin. Looks to me like that's not the way to do it. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say here, I don't think that's the way to do it. They confessed and forsook their sin. So um, further punishment would run the risk of driving the repentant sinner to despair. And that's not what we want. 
So he says in verse 8, Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Not that they, hopefully, had ever stopped loving him. They loved him the whole time. Paul loved him the whole time. God loved him the whole time. But he wasn't in a position to receive that love. Kind of like uh, some of the old saints used to be, uh, used to say, in the church that we used to go to years ago, I said, I want to be, I, I want to stay under the spout where the blessing comes out. And uh, he hadn't been under the spout where, where the uh, manifestation of that love, in a way that you'd recognize, you know, actually the discipline was from love too, but it's not the way you kind of look for love normally. But anyway, so now the, this is taken care of, reaffirm your love, demonstrate your love towards this and restore him to full fellowship. Now I would add here that restoration to fellowship does not always necessarily have to mean uh, restoration to leadership. And I know that gets to be very controversial in many churches. And without uh, going too much out on a limb on that, and I see that there are certain qualifications for certain offices. And uh, I think that if anyone, uh, whether they bear the name of that office or not, sometimes we've, we, we have different positions in the modern church. And again, without entering into a discussion whether that's a good idea or not, just saying we do, if, if someone fulfills a function of, uh, for example, an elder or a deacon, uh, and um, the qualifications are, are there anyway. And there are things that you can do and be, I think, uh, I would go so far as I would think this, and I, I tread lightly here because uh, this is something that, that can cause controversy sometimes, but uh, I think there are things one can do which would render one... Uh, permanently ineligible for certain functions within the church, but fully eligible to be restored to fellowship and to, to be among the brethren and to be loved by them and to come and worship with the brethren when the brethren assemble together and to sing the hymns of Zion and all those good things. And why, who could really ask for more than that? So anyway, full fellowship there. So verse 9, For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. So, pretty obvious, uh, telling them to do this. This is something they needed to do, and he's going to find out, are they going to obey uh, apostolic authority in this? They did, which was good. It wasn't quite clear that they would before because there were some bad problems, some those factions and things like that, and some folks bad-talking Paul. It turned out they, were, they came through uh, with flying colors on this one, so that was good. Now, uh, verses 10 and 11. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. You know, um, sometimes I, I kind of miss the old King James translation. Not on this verse. Uh, there are some verses, you know, that, um, and I, I, there's a reason for it. And I don't blame the translators, but uh, this is one that came through real awkward in the old uh in King James, it was like, to whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if, I have forg- uh, for if I have forgiven anyone to whom I have forgiven it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. And uh, it gets a little confusing. Uh, I, I understand why they're doing that, though, because they're trying to stick very close to the Greek and, and closer than we normally would in a translation. But I appreciate that in a, a Bible translation. I, I tend to say if, if your translation of the New Testament doesn't sound vaguely Greekish, um, it's, it, you need a better one. And if your translation of the Old Testament doesn't reek of Hebrewisms, uh, you need a better uh, translation. I like to stay as close as I can. Now, a word-for-word literal translation still is, is not possible. It just wouldn't make sense. That's not the way languages work. But there's close translation, which is what I like in the Bible. And then there's a free translation, which is fine if you're translating Bambi out of the German or whatever. But... Um, and uh, not, uh, not the Bible. So I understand what they were doing. And the Apostle Paul, uh, I, not that I would be able to tell one fellow's Greek from the other, but I'm told that the Apostle Paul's Greek was perhaps a little bit complicated. Anyway, so he's saying uh, he would concur with them in forgiving the man in question. Pretty straightforward there. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Yes, indeed. Satan has a lot of devices, and we need to be wise to them. And he has so many tricks and tries to take advantage of us so many ways. And he can even get us 
uh, or he'll try uh, to catch us or get us going his way. When we're doing something for the Lord and we're doing the right thing and we're taking a step of obedience. Now, you can probably think pretty quickly, what, what's the quickest thing? You know, boy, the Lord wants me to do so-and-so. I'm going to do so-and-so for the Lord. And I do it. And, the, the, and you know in chess, like any move you make, that leaves an opening. And the other guy's got counterplay. He can come back. Okay, what's he doing next? He's saying, you should be proud of yourself. Oops, that was the devil. <laughs> the temptation for pride came right after. And uh, no, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God later in the book. But um, anyway, so he, in this case, would it be as well, like, well, you discipline this guy, and boy, we're going to discipline him. Oh, we, we let that go. We let that slide, and that wasn't good. We had that outbroken sinner right there in the church and uh, in full fellowship, and and Paul called us down for that. We're going to show Paul we're going to discipline that guy so well, we're just going to really uh, lower the boom on him for a long time. And that wasn't it. And then Satan would, would take advantage of him by that, by convincing people, look at those judgmental, harsh, unforgiving people. Now, they'll call us judgmental. Anyway, you know the life verse of everyone who doesn't want to obey God, life verse fragment that they don't understand application of is judge not that you be not judged and they love to repeat that endlessly don't want to obey god uh that's your verse but not really (laughs) really if you take it in context and you know what it means it doesn't do you any good in fact there's nothing in the bible that's any good for folks that don't want to obey god but they'll call us judgmental anyway but we don't have to give them genuine reason to do that there's a lot of things that the ungodly things the ungodly will say about us and, and we don't have to make it true. And he said, Jesus said, Blessed are you when men shall revile you, persecute you, say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Just don't make it true. And uh, yeah, if we try to obey the Lord, you know, I, I said, what was corollary to uh, all they that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution is all they in the late 20th and early 21st century who try to obey God's uh, law will be called legalists. I mean, if you just do it to please the Lord because you love him, they'll still call you legalists. But we don't have to make it true. We don't actually have to be that or actually be harsh and unforgiving. We can be harsh. They'll call us unforgiving, but uh, <laughs> they'll call, yeah, anyway, that's a lot. they'll find lots of reasons to call us that falsely. Let's just make sure it's false. Okay, now Paul's labors in their fruit. And he, he goes into this, and verse 12 shows us how he goes into this. It kind of segues from, I was really concerned about you at Corinth. And, I, and that's why we get verse 12. He gets a discussion of his labors and their fruit. So, moving on. Verse 12, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. Now, if you don't know the context or what's going on here, you think, wow, Paul was really worried about Titus. I mean, you think that Titus had, had like, backslidden or something or, or got lost or uh, Google Maps steered Titus wrong and he wasn't in Troas. He was, you know, just someplace else. It's entirely believable, except that they didn't have Google Maps back then. But anyway, um, no, that's not it. Paul had sent Titus to Corinth, and Titus was supposed to be coming back with word of the response of the people in Corinth, which was by no means a foregone conclusion. It was Paul was by no means certain, and no one else should be either, of how the people of Corinth, were, the believers, the believers at Corinth, were going to react to this word from Paul. And maybe, uh, maybe they wouldn't uh, accept it. Maybe they wouldn't believe what. Uh, he was saying or wouldn't follow his instructions. So he's really concerned about that. That's as heavy on his heart. And he was hoping by the time he got to Troas that Titus would be on his way back around the north end of the Aegean Sea. And that brings you through Troas, which is quite a crossroads town. It used to be called Troy. Um, that um, he'd hear what was going on in Corinth and how they reacted to the first letter. The first epistle to the Corinthians, the first inspired epistle to the Corinthians. Um, but uh, Titus wasn't there. So uh, that was uh, upsetting to him. So he departed from Macedonia. 
Um, so this episode is covered uh, as part of Paul's trip from Ephesus to Greece in Acts uh, chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. So the end of uh, chapter 19 is where you get the, uh, the big riot in Ephesus. Great is dying of the Ephesians and all that business. And uh, Paul uh, being, uh, uh, well, they were going to drag him out into the, the theater there at Ephesus, and it was just quite a thing. Anyway, uh, so uh, Acts 20, verses 1 and 2 says, After the uproar in Ephesus had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. So that actually covers what we're hearing here. So he, uh, in fact, let's look at a map. There we go. Here's a map of Paul's third missionary journey. I, and by the way, when we finish 2 Corinthians, Lord willing, uh, we'll go into a series on Paul's missionary journeys, and I'm looking forward to that. So here um, we have Ephesus. Paul was there, and they had a big riot, so he left. And he went up to Troas. He's on his way to Greece, actually, to Corinth. And Corinth is where he had ended up going. And he went through Troas, and this is the second time he'd been there. He'd been there before on his second missionary journey, and that's where he was when he had that dream of the person, a man from Macedonia, saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. So he was preaching there, and things were going well. And, and the door was open to him, but Titus wasn't there. Why doesn't Titus come? What is going on? So Paul then went on, and went on through Macedonia, apparently ran into Titus in Macedonia, and apparently that... Uh, is where he finished uh, the letter, the second letter to the Corinthians, because he sends it on ahead, apparently. And then later he comes on down uh, to these places. Well, okay, so much for that. Now, verse 14. We come to the end of the uh, chapter, um, and really some good stuff. So, hang on. Verse 14. Now, thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. So Paul was rejoicing about the open door in Troas, and he was rejoicing at the good news from Corinth. People were open to the gospel in Troas because Paul always had, you know, he, had, he can't stay very long in one place. He can never stay as long as, as really what you wish he could, he would wish he could and to preach the gospel there. People were responding, and he's happy. He got to Macedonia, here comes Titus, and he says, oh, the folks in Corinth really handled this well, and they... They're really um, getting right and getting squared away the way they should, and it's really good. So, and, and he says, thanks be to God for this. So it wasn't what Paul wrote, it wasn't what Titus said, and it wasn't even really what the people at Corinth or, or the people in Troas did. God does this. For the believer, our triumphs are always in Christ. A triumph for a Roman general was a much coveted thing, and all the, all the generals thought, if I could win a triumph... It was like the Congressional Medal of Honor and a huge promotion and more than that. It was an amazing thing. And generals coveted that. And, and it's only a few of the very, very greatest Roman generals ever had gotten two triumphs before it just became a routine thing for the, the emperor, but that's another story. But anyway, it was a big deal. It was a victory parade through Rome. It was given at the behest of the Senate. The Senate would vote... You get a triumph, and you get a triumph. No, sorry. Um, but anyway, they didn't do that very often. But they give somebody a triumph, and this is a victory parade through Rome. And the general's army would march through, uh, march in the parade and captured enemy soldiers and be hauled along in wagons and sometimes put to death, uh, often. Uh, especially the enemy leader, where can Gatorix or Jugurtha or some of these big uh, uh, generals that the Romans defeated, ah, bring them there and garret them. Uh, during the parade, incense was burned for a sweet fragrance. So there's the reference to the fragrance. Now you can see this. Uh, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. So the triumph is, is Christ. It's, it's his triumph. He's the victorious one. He won the victory over the enemy. And we're just, and, and scholars and commentators are kind of uh, well, are we the people who are captives, uh, captured and taken in, or are we the, uh, his own army? I prefer to think we're his foot soldiers. Um, I won't argue about it, but I just would prefer to think that we're his foot soldiers. But here we are, the foot soldiers in his army, and he's the, the great general 
who has, uh, who has given us the victory, has brought the victory, and uh, it's through, then it's through us that he diffuses the sweet fragrance of the gospel uh, throughout the world. Okay, moving on. Uh, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ, this is verse 15, of course, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Verse 16. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Okay, so to those who believe on Christ, those who bring the good news of salvation are an aroma of life. To those who reject Christ, those who bring the good news of salvation are an aroma of death. Uh, How is that? Well, when we share the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, he was truly God and truly man, he died for our sins, all of them, and God raised him from the dead, showing that God had, had accepted that sacrifice as fully sufficient for all our sins. Uh, and he's ascended into heaven, and he's there to make intercession for everyone who comes to God by him. That's good news. And when we share that good news, the people who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to them, that's the news of a risen, living Savior who brings spiritual life to them, the aroma of life unto life. But to those who reject, those who don't believe, they believe that Christ is a dead moral teacher or whatever, a dead Jewish person of the first century and uh, still in the grave and has decayed away. And uh, they believe it's a dead faith in a dead uh, savior who can't save us if he's dead and therefore uh, he's the aroma to them of death leading to their spiritual death because they reject Christ and who is sufficient for these things to be the one who brings that aroma who brings that good news to have that responsibility is, is a tremendous responsibility who is sufficient for these things and he doesn't really answer it's like well the answer is, well, in ourselves, absolutely nobody. Who, who is fit? Who is capable? Who can communicate well enough? Whose life fits up to this message well enough or, uh, to that he of himself is uh, fit or capable to communicate this message to anybody to, to have this responsibility? And the answer is, of course, no one at all. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who hath made us able ministers of the gospel. So those, and of course some, are called uh, to uh, preach the gospel um, full-time, like the Apostle Paul. And others are full-time Christians who uh, share the gospel as opportunity offers and as God leads It's an awesome responsibility for which none of us is sufficient in himself, but our sufficiency is of God. And nobody needs to think, I'm actually good enough to do this. That would be disqualifying point number one. I I imagine that I possess the capability to do this. Okay. Verse 17, and there's a lot more here in this last verse of of chapter than one would think. For we are not, we, uh, Paul and the party that came with him, we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. The word here that's translated in the New King James, peddling, but in the Old King James, corrupting, is kapeliontes, kapeliontes. And this, it appears here and no place else in the entire New Testament. The word originally referred to a retailer in the local city market. Whatever market, wherever city you were in had a marketplace. And if you were one of these items, the noun form, whatever the noun form of capelluantes is, uh, you would go to that market and you would set up shop there and you would sell your wares. 
And over time, it came to refer especially to wine merchants. And because of the practices of the wine merchants, it came to mean uh, a huckster, a swindler, specifically someone who adulterates his wares. Now, to adulterate something, uh, that is to maximize one's profit by mixing what should be pure with worthless and sometimes even harmful substances. So, uh, he's saying we are not peddling luantes, uh, capiluantes, um, the uh, capiluantes, yeah, uh, the uh, word of God. We're not corrupting it. We're not adulterating it. We're giving it to you straight. But as of sincerity, uh, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. And we need to be sincere and we need to be honest and we need to be open and transparent in a good way you know where they say they can see right through you well hopefully people can see right through us and it's true all the way through that we believe we really believe this is true and we're telling it to them because we want them to believe it too so that they can be saved because we really think it's true and there are lots of ways, aren't there? We've heard of some in recent times. I mean, uh, Brother Robert brought a series on false teachers, all the ways that the gospel can be adulterated. And we could think of many species of that um, almost endlessly, right? But uh, ways that it can be, we could bring in something else. We could add something to it. We could bring in some foreign matter. We could, uh, I think one of the ways that the gospel gets adulterated is, is something is taken in. You know, the gospel, well, let me say, uh, it's been said that the main thing is keeping the main thing the main thing. You know, we've got the main thing that's supposed to be the center point of the whole thing, the keystone of the arch, and all the other stuff under that. That's all dependent on that. And, and I think sometimes what happens is we take one of the good things that ought to be dependent on the main thing, and we start putting it in there. Let me give a dumb example. I don't know how dumb this is. I, I think I've kind of seen it done. Not here. <laughs> I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't use an example if I'd seen it done here. But uh, I can think of a place. But um, suppose, let's take a, a, a point of obedience that Christians ought to do, which is assemble together regularly with other believers. Christians should do that. Yes, they should. Straight out command of God. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, but uh, exhorting one another, and, and so much the more as uh, you see the day approaching. Actually, forsaking not the assembling. But anyway, yes, we're supposed to do that, for sure. And um, if someone was able to assemble with the other believers, and there were no uh, hindrances, uh, distance, and... Uh, pestilences and, and all the other things that we know about and we're all well familiar with. But, but one had perfectly good opportunity without letter hindrance to assemble with other believers and he never did it because he just didn't want to. We would have reason to have serious question about that you know, person being squared away with God. Seems like if you were squared away with God, you would wish to do this if it were possible to you. If uh, again, distance and opportunity and health and so on and so on and so on allowed that to be done. Mind, mind the qualifiers I'm putting in there. Uh, you understand what I'm saying. But uh, So that's something that Christians should do. But imagine if, if we just started harping on that day in and day out. Imagine if I started harping on it day in and day out. Well, what is Brother Steve going on about? Oh, it's the usual thing. You need to go to church on Sunday. And and if you don't go to church on Sunday, you're probably not saved. And in fact, if you don't go to church on Sunday, you're for sure not saved. And, and you're, you're backslidden or whatever. And he's just on and on about that all the time. And you know what will save this country is people going to church on Sunday. And the problem we have is not going to church on Sunday. And that's okay, okay. It, yeah, it would be a good thing for sure if more people went to church on Sunday. I will underline. And if they went to good Bible-believing churches that preach the truth, 
that'd be a good thing too. Um, but you can, can you see how I would be adulterating the gospel? My main message wouldn't be the main message anymore. What's Woodward's gospel? Well, let's go to church on Sunday and thou shalt be saved. Oops, that's not the gospel at all. That's messed up. That will not save you. And you know that. Just warming a pew every Sunday isn't going to get it done. Hopefully, if you're in the right, in the right pew in the right church, you'd be in a place where you would hear about how to get it done, how to get to heaven. But uh, just being there, that won't do it. But uh, that's a silly example, isn't it? So let me give you another illustration from history. You know I like, everybody knows I like to tell history stories. So here it comes. As Abraham Lincoln said, we cannot escape history, and with Woodworth around, neither can you. He's on the history stuff again. Oh, no. Well, for about 30 years before the Civil War, there was a movement in the northern states called abolitionism, and it was an anti-slavery movement. Not everybody who was against slavery was an abolitionist. For example, Abraham Lincoln was not one. But all of the people who were most virulent and, and strongest and took the strongest stand against slavery were abolitionists. To, to take a strong, virulent stand to say slavery is morally wrong. Slavery is a sin. And what do you do with sins? You stop them now. And that's an abolitionist talking. And is it a surprise that the great majority of abolitionists were evangelical Christians. That, I've read one article that seven out of eight of them were. I haven't done the primary source research myself, so I can't necessarily vouch for that. But the claim has been made, and it may be true. Certainly a lot of them were. It may also surprise you to know that abolitionists were in the minority, even within the northern states, and all the way up to the Civil War. They were a minority. Um, but that didn't stop them. They kept on and, and, and held firm. Uh, and, and for these evangelical Christians, I think of Orange Scott, a uh, uh, Methodist preacher who left the Methodist church. Uh, yeah, I feel at home with him uh, in, uh, in uh, Massachusetts who, uh, and was a strong abolitionist. And uh, for them... Uh, taking a stand against slavery was taking a stand on the great moral issue of the day. Here is this institution, which we have in our government, protected by our laws, that says that a certain class of human beings can be declared not fully human, and their rights don't have to be respected. It's, it's kind of like today, with us, with abortion, where we, today, in our society, with our laws, it says that a certain class of human beings don't have to be respected as full human beings, and their rights don't have to be respected, and they can be killed. Very strong, strong similarity there in both. And so the, the Christians, and by the way, if you, if you look and you go through here, the, the denominations or churches or, or individuals who were the most uh, zealous and, uh, and uh, on fire for the Lord and, and whatever words you want to use, were the ones who were, who were taking the strongest in abolition. The, most, the best known preacher of that era, uh, um, Charles uh, Finney, uh, was a well-known abolitionist, and he founded a Christian college just outside uh, Cleveland. Uh, well, it's just outside Cleveland now. It was farther outside then, and it hasn't moved. But uh, it's not a Christian college anymore. But uh, anyway, uh, and it was well known as an abolitionist college and was actually a, a way station on the uh, Underground Railroad where they would help escaping slaves to get, a, get to Canada where they could be free. And Finney was an abolitionist. And Finney said very plainly, it is essential that the church take right ground on politics. That that's... You know, that's part of our witness before a watching world that the church takes right ground on politics. And, and the first thing he said after that is a nice little piece here that I can send you if you're interested in it. I had my class read it as a primary source this semester. And, and the first thing after he said is it is essential that the watching world know that Christians will vote only for honest men. 
if society knew that the Christians in society will vote only for honest men, we wouldn't have the problem with dishonest politicians that we often have. And then, of course, they need to vote against slavery and so on. But, you know, Finney, who's Mr., I mean, was viewed as kind of Mr. Anti-Slavery Preacher, he said something that might surprise you. He said, he said to this to a fellow preacher, he said, we need to be careful about abolitionism. Now, Finney is an abolitionist. He's for it. But we need to be careful with it, he said, because, and this is a quote, he said, abolition has eaten out some of our best men. Now, he wasn't referring to the guy I'm about to name to you in about three minutes if I talk fast. Uh, he wasn't referring to the guy I'm about to name to you because that guy really hadn't become well-known. He was alive, but he wasn't well-known when Finney said this. He was talking about some other preachers who had, you know, they'd taken the cause of abolitionism out of obedience to Christ. You know, in our obedience to Christ, we're going to take a stand for abolition. And it was not a popular stand back then. You were not in the mainstream if you were an abolitionist. You were a little crazy. You were just radical if you were an abolitionist. And they took that stand in their obedience to Christ. But after a while, somehow, it stopped being so much about Christ and the gospel. It started being more about abolition. And the gospel wasn't Christ and him crucified. It was, we need to abolish slavery. And Christianity was useful chiefly for the excellent arguments it persuaded in support of abolitionism. And the one fellow I'm, I'm going to mention to you is a guy whose life kind of haunts me. And his name was John Brown, and maybe you've heard about him. He was born in Connecticut in 1800, uh, the descendant of English Puritans who had come to New England in the 1600s. You can identify with that. And as a five-year-old, he moved to Summit County, Ohio, with his family, of course. I was born in Summit County, Ohio. How about that? And he, he um, grew up there, and uh, he you know, professed a faith in Christ, a very strong faith in Christ. And he was interested in becoming a minister, a preacher, a pastor. But uh, it, uh, it didn't work out for him to do that. And so he followed his father's uh, business that he did, which is a tanner. And he worked up there in northeastern Ohio most time, moved around a lot to a number of places. And, you know, in his zeal for, for Christ, I guess, he became um, quite zealous for abolitionism and for racial equality, too. He was one of the few people at that time, and, and, and it's hard for us today to, to grasp how radical and how out on a limb crazy this was. He'd invite uh, black people and black families to come and have dinner in his house with, with his family. And sometimes he'd have them for house guests. And you just didn't do that back then. For, for some of the time, he took his family to live in a little community in New York. It was an overwhelmingly community of, uh, of free blacks. And so Because he wanted his kids to grow up in a racially integrated community. In 1837, he kind of got up and gave a testimony before the church that he was in and said, I hear, and now before these witnesses, dedicate my life to ending slavery. Now, something's starting to go wrong here because, wait a minute, our life is supposed to be dedicated to Jesus Christ. That's it. He's the sole owner, and everything else follows after, as far as Woodworth is concerned. I think as far as he's concerned, too. At least that's the way I want it to be in my life. But he's ending slavery. And after that, things weren't always right. Um, he campaigned against slavery, and he worked for the Underground Railroad, and I guess I'm okay with that. It was illegal, but I'm okay with that. But then in 1856, he led a raid against a community of slaveholders in Kansas and killed, oh, about half a dozen men with something like a machete after they had been dragged out of their houses and disarmed. Uh, it doesn't look good at all for John Brown. Never did anything like that again, but he did more raids, and we think some people got shot in them. And then finally in October of 1859, he carried out a raid on the U.S. Arsenal in Harpers Ferry, Virginia, and uh, it, uh, it went south as anybody with any sense could have seen it would. And... Uh, a bunch of people got killed. The mayor of Harpers Ferry got killed. Some other people got killed. A bunch of John Brown's men got killed. Two of his grown sons got killed. They were with him in the deal. He had 12 or 14 kids. I forget. It was almost like a homeschool family. And uh, 
And they were all with him in it. They all supported him in this. They were right, you know, those who were old enough and were still alive supported him. One of his sons was killed out in Kansas when they were out there. A couple of them got killed at Harpers Ferry. John Brown was taken prisoner, was tried, put on trial, was convicted, and was hanged in the fall of, of uh, 1859. Right up to his death, John Brown professed a faith in Christ. He said that everything he had done, <sighs> he said that everything he had done had been for the cause of Christ and for the obedience to the Bible. And, uh, and here's the bit that really haunts me. Because it, and I don't know if I've, I, I've taken too much time anyway. I've kept you over and I'm sorry, but I don't know if I've been able to bring it out in this much time. How much you get if you read a biography of John Brown. You find yourself uh, rooting for him and agreeing with him. And yeah, go John Brown. Free those slaves. Yeah, wait, John, no. Don't do that. What are you thinking about? What got into you? Well, he had these 12 or 14 kids and a couple got killed at Harper's Ferry, and one got killed in Kansas. One of his daughters lost her husband in the Harper's Ferry raid, who was following John Brown. All of his children, all of his children, professed strong faith in abolitionism. They were gung-ho, sold out, all the way, abolitionists. But none of them professed faith in Jesus Christ. Apparently, they had sensed, picked up, what their father's real gospel was. And that kind of makes my hair stand on end a little bit about anything I'm enthusiastic about, hiking in the mountains, uh, or any political cause, or politics at all, or just anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, that I would come down to the end of my life and my children would say, we're following in God's footsteps, or excuse me, we're following in our father, yeah, we're following in our father's footsteps. We're doing it like old dad did it. We're not fooling around with that Christianity thing that was that side thing he didn't really care about. We're following what dad really believed. It's the gospel of history education or anything else but Jesus Christ. When I come down to the end, I want my children to say, well, you know, dad might have gotten off into a lot of enthusiasms, growing apples and hiking in the woods and different stuff. But what was really important to him, the main thing, was Jesus Christ and him crucified. I don't want to have adulterated the gospel. Thank you all for your attention. Let's close with prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word And we pray that you'd help us to take it to heart. We pray now that you'd be with us as we go into the next service. Bless us and help us to glorify you in our worship and receive our worship, we pray. And we pray that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit, that we might be filled with the knowledge of your will, that we might walk pleasing to you in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.